Welcome to Inside Medical Malpractice. My name is Chris Rokosh. I'm a registered nurse, legal consultant and educator, and the president of Connect Medical Legal Experts. Each month, we'll be looking at the malpractice issues from different perspectives, featuring honest, candid, insightful interviews by people and professionals with a wealth of information to share. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now let's dive into this fascinating subject. Welcome to another great episode of Inside Medical Mob Practice, and thank you so very much for tuning in today. It is never lost on me that without you, I wouldn't be here. So thanks from the bottom of my heart. Today marks the beginning of a series of four podcasts on trauma-informed lawyering. Whether you're a plaintiff or defense lawyer, a healthcare provider, a family who has experienced a medical trauma, or someone who knows someone who has, I promise there's going to be something valuable for you here. First, let me tell you how this idea even came to be. In April of this year, I was in Vietnam, sitting in my hotel room, when I got a phone call from Sonia Nijar, a lawyer from Einstein Personal Injury Firm in Toronto. Sonia, who you're going to meet later on in this series, told me that she was planning a trauma-informed workshop for the following day, and that she thought it might make a great idea for a podcast. I told her to have the workshop, see how it went, let me know how it went, and then we'd chat again. She got in touch with me a few days later to tell me that the workshop was fabulous, had been very well received by their firm, and that the speakers, Olivia Scobie and Kara Harden, were absolutely outstanding. I fell in love with her idea, and I've spent the past couple of months pulling this podcast series together. I am personally very excited about this podcast because I'll tell you, I worked for a long time as a labor and delivery nurse, and I have witnessed some terrible things, and I've heard about even worse things than I've ever seen, but no one has ever, ever, ever talked to me about the trauma that those events may have caused, how to deal with it, how to put words to it, how to understand how it affected my life inside and outside the workplace, or what I can do about it now. So I'm going to be learning right along with you. We're going to focus this series on birth trauma, and for a few reasons. Firstly, it's my own area of expertise, and even though I don't know much about being trauma-informed yet, I know a lot about birth trauma. Secondly, I think that maybe the trauma that comes from a bad outcome at birth has got to be one of the greatest. I've been present at the beginning and the middle and for the aftermath of this kind of trauma and experienced it with a family member of my own. And there, there, there are no words. And thirdly, malpractice lawyers have shared with me that birth trauma seems to be underreported and underlitigated, that only a percentage of potentially eligible birth trauma injury lawsuits ever see the light of day. So for lawyers and for all of us to have a better understanding of what families are going through, to examine how we engage with their trauma based on their past experiences and our own, will hopefully offer insight into how to better reach clients, how to better support them, how to navigate families through the legal system in a way that makes them feel safe and empowered. And isn't that what we just all want to feel all the time anyway, safe and empowered? Also, to me, it always seems like the vicarious trauma malpractice lawyers deal with on a daily basis has to be tremendous. Many times in the past, I've asked lawyers I knew 
How do they keep their hearts from breaking every single day? And how are they not terrified every time they or someone they know goes into the hospital? Or God forbid has a baby. And if they try to tell me that that trauma doesn't bother them, I literally sometimes put my hand on their chest to make sure that they have an actual beating heart in there. I feel fortunate as a nurse to have known and witnessed and that most of the time things turn out okay. It's given me a perspective that's balanced of both the good and the bad in healthcare. But lawyers are often or always dealing with the bad. And statistically, depression and drug use, alcohol abuse, and suicide are high in that profession. It's got to be a tough job. I mean, I'm clearly not a lawyer, but I worry about the ones I know all the time. So the next four episodes are going to go something like this. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to define some key phrases and terms. We're going to learn how to recognize trauma in others and ourselves. We're going to talk about the things that happened at the beginning of our birth trauma journey, pregnancy and the birth, and focus on trauma experienced by the parents, their families, and the care providers when things go wrong. In episode two, we're going to look at how our own personal trauma shows up at work, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, a nurse, or anybody else who's listening, and how it affects the way we deal with people who have been traumatized. In episode three, we're going to pull in lawyer Sonia Nijar, the one who first contacted me about this podcast, and she is a relatively new mother herself. Sonia's going to present a case study or two on birth trauma. We're going to talk about the real-life day-to-day effects of dealing with trauma with clients and with yourselves. And we're going to, in Sonia's case, talk a little bit about her own labor and delivery, which was the impetus for her to plan this, this conference on trauma for lawyers. In the final episode, we're going to talk to the mother of an infant who is severely injured at birth. And has also gone through the lengthy and difficult process of a malpractice lawsuit. She's going to share the trauma of the birth, the trauma of dealing with the legal system, and I'm sure the trauma that has affected every single other part of her life. So let's get started. Today, my guest is Olivia Scobie, co-founder of the Canadian Peri Mental Health Training and a registered social work counselor. The reason I know about Olivia is she was one of the presenters of the birth trauma or the trauma informed lawyering workshop that Sonia called me about. She held it in Toronto. Olivia specializes in the niche area of perinatal mental health and has a unique background experience of providing support to both the family and healthcare providers being sued when things go wrong. Olivia obtained her master's in social work from Dalhousie University a Master of Sociology from York University, and she tells me, and I believe it, that she's a continuous learner as she's currently completing a PhD in Health Policy and Equity at York University. Welcome, Olivia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I kid you not when I tell you I'm thrilled about this workshop and really anxious to hear what you have to say. Yes, this has been... um something near and dear to my own heart in terms of talking about birth trauma, what that means for both birthers and providers. Yes, thank you. Well, why don't you start right there and provide some background on your journey to where you are today and particularly what led you to the focus of the area of perinatal mental health? 
You know, I think like many people who go into this work, I came to perinatal mental health and birth trauma through my own experience. And I, um, I was pretty young when I had my first child. I was fresh out of high school. I had just gone off to college um, and I was pregnant, I think, by the second semester and home deciding what I was going to do next in terms of having this baby. I had a really scary birth um, that really rocked me. I wasn't expecting it to be as scary as it was, um, but I did survive it. And then I was thrust into some pretty significant postpartum depression after that. And pretty shortly after my first child was born, I returned to school. So I think I was about 20 at the time. Um, and I didn't really understand what was happening to me. I, I wasn't thinking about my experience through the language of postpartum depression, but I was taking a lot of courses on women's studies and sociology courses. And I often say that my undergrad was like my therapy because it really helped me sort of locate my own experience within this broader experience of parents and mothers. And so it really piqued my interest in terms of my research interests. And I went on to do my MA in sociology and I was doing research with um, mothers in the prison system at the time. And I got really interested in how social and criminal justice policies shape our experience of seeing ourselves as a good mom, a good parent, um, who gets to see us as a good mom or a good parent. And then after that, I, I wanted to work more one-on-one -on -one with clients. And so I went back and got um, a master's in social work so that I could do psychotherapy, social work psychotherapy with clients because I wanted to sort of help from the ground up, not just from policy down. And that's where a lot of my work started to come together around mapping our experiences as parents within this broader social construct and what that does to our mood. Um, and then from there, I got really into birth and reproductive trauma, which is where my research is sitting now. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. And I just want to say, bless you for doing all that. Because <laughs> it, it seems, it seems like it's all kind of news to me, but I'm sure it isn't. You've been obviously been, you know, studying and pursuing this a long time. Didn't you tell me that you started some part of this journey you were a doula as well? I did work as a doula when I was putting myself through social work school. Um, and so I probably attended a couple hundred births myself um, in a doula support role, which also really shaped how I sort of came to see birthing experiences and all the dynamics that play out at a birth as um, an observer in that way. I mean, there for the client, but you really get to take it all in and witness it when you're there in that role. You know, it's kind of amazing. And I'll tell you something. I mean, since you got so personal, I will too. When I went away to nursing school, I'd been brought up in a very, very strict household. You know, there were, there was, it was a lot of religious and it was curfew and it was tight. And I just went kind of crazy when I went away to nursing school. And by the end of my first year, I, like you, was pregnant and broke and working at a grocery store, but luckily committed to get through my schooling. I went through my whole, you know, last year of nursing school pregnant and had the baby between the end of classes and the beginning of exams. And um, I, and now when I hear you talk and look back at things, I wonder how the hell I got through all that. You know, I was only 19, same thing. And um, I've never looked at how maybe that sparked my interest in, I worked as a nurse labor and delivery for very much of my life. I've done some other things, but 
So again, I just want to say, I am dying to hear what you have to say today. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I think when you have your kid young, it really, I mean, it's such a profoundly life-changing experience and one that I was not expecting at that time in my life. And it really did shape um, what I wanted to do with my life. I went from, I have no idea what I'm going to do to like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like work with families. I'm going to think about parenting and family life and all those things. Well, good for you. <laughs> and thanks to those kids who shaped our lives in this direction too, right? No, my eldest is 19, which is wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because trauma information is a fresh topic to me, and I think to many other people listening in, can you start by defining some of the terms and phrases that we all need to know? Yeah. So one thing that you might hear me do today is I'm going to go back and forth between talking about birth trauma and reproductive trauma. And birth trauma is kind of the it girl when it comes to reproductive trauma. It's where a lot of our research is and where a lot of our focus is. But really, trauma can happen anywhere along that reproductive spectrum. So starting in fertility with people who have multiple losses, all throughout pregnancy, really scary stuff happening in pregnancy. Even I've worked with clients who had hyperemesis and that was really traumatic for them to experience their body in that way all the way till um, postpartum. And sometimes the birth goes really well, but then everything falls apart after the birth. When we have parents in the NICU are often um, get diagnosis of um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which I'll talk about in a second. So you'll hear me flip back and forth, but I'm really going to try to focus today on the events that happen at the birth. And the other thing in this world of birth trauma is that it can actually be really hard to define. And so everybody talks about it a little bit differently. So sometimes people will talk about birth trauma if um, birthers or parents are showing post-traumatic stress symptoms, meaning that after the birth, they start to have um, really negative emotional experiences such as flashbacks such as dissociation where they're feeling really disconnected from their body there can be huge memory gaps here um sometimes they'll struggle with sleep or struggle with regulating their mood and so those are just the symptoms of what can happen after a traumatic event and post-traumatic stress symptoms are actually fairly normal um when somebody's been through something very intense or very scary it doesn't always mean that it will translate into post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd um, so some people will sort of track birth trauma just by symptoms, um, but they will often integrate and sort of go away, essentially, for the most part, um, if people have enough support and ability to process that. And that's a little different from PTSD, which is a phrase that gets thrown around quite a bit. Um, and PTSD is actually a clinical diagnosis. When those post-traumatic stress symptoms get worse over time, they don't go away over time. Um, and usually you have to hit at least a six to an eight week mark in order to get diagnosed um, with that. So again, all of the same symptoms around flashbacks, difficulty with regulation. Um, sometimes you'll see avoidance there too. Like I don't want to go back to the hospital. I never want to see a doctor again. Um, and then there's people who have complex PTSD. And complex PTSD is when it's not linked necessarily to one traumatic event, like one birth trauma. Usually if somebody gets diagnosed with complex PTSD after a birth, it's because they have had a lot of experiences of trauma throughout the life course. And so that will show up a lot with a lot of the same post-traumatic stress symptoms, but usually you'll see more here. So 
A lot of challenges in relationships may show up here. Often there's personality changes. There's quite a bit of toxic shame that'll show up here. And I mention that because as we talk about later, like what to look for if somebody's coming in, a birther's coming in with complex PTSD, that's going to look a little bit different um, than somebody who doesn't have a, a lot of trauma experiences. Um, and so all of this kind of matters because the rates of how often childbirth trauma or birth trauma comes up really differs depending on how you define it. So globally, people who have post-traumatic stress symptoms after giving birth is there's quite a range. It's about 20 to 48% of people will have that versus people who will get diagnosed with PTSD after childbirth. It's closer to like one to 7%. Um, but a lot of people, what's interesting is when you ask people who've given birth, would you describe your experience of the birth as traumatic? About 50% of them will say, yeah, I would describe it as traumatic. So, um, there's this catchphrase in like the birth trauma world, which is that birth trauma is in the eye of the beholder, which I think um, Cheryl Beck coined that term in the 90s. Um, and so that's often what I sort of use for people that you get to define what the birth was like for you, even if it doesn't meet that sort of clinical um, diagnostic thresh threshold for people. So you'll hear me talk about that um, quite a bit. I just want to say that <clears throat> the, the birth trauma being in the eye of the beholder is has been my experience too. When people hear your labor and delivery nurse, um, I've heard a lot of birth stories from a lot of people, strangers, strangers in restaurants and lines at the grocery store. And I'm always in awe of how people ad interpret or define the trauma. And sometimes it's something that to another person was just nothing, but it has affected their life really deeply. And it's a thing there they're remembering and kind of fixating on and it's become a part of their story that they tell over and over again. Why, can I just ask you a quick question there? Like, is there any explanation for why one thing to someone will be like, just they'll breeze right through it and it's yesterday's news and in other people it become a part of their story and a part of their life and a part of their trauma? My guess is that it would tie into other traumatic events that that person has experienced. And so if somebody, for example, has a history of sexual violence, things that happen at the birth might feel very re-traumatizing or triggering for them, too familiar for them. If somebody doesn't have that history, it might not land in the same way. There's also a lot that comes up for people around the expectations they have of their birth. And so for some people, they're really open to, I am happy to give birth lots of different ways. Other people, the idea of having a surgical birth is not okay. That feels like they didn't give birth. And so that's going to land really differently for them um, as well. And then a big thing I find is that the relationship people have with their healthcare providers really shapes that, that there's actually quite a bit of tolerance for things not going according to plan. So long as people feel as though their choices were respected, that they got to influence and collaborate on their care, so long as they felt as though they were being treated with dignity throughout the process. And so another theme we'll probably talk about today is the difference between things going wrong medically and then having a traumatic experience versus things falling apart relationally with providers. And that can land really differently for people as well. And as I listened to you, I was thinking about how often where we'll hear the stories of birth trauma are at baby showers. And so people who would not necessarily 
say that their birth was traumatic, often these are sometimes the, the grannies who are at the baby showers, will tell these wild stories, wild stories that land so traumatic for me to hear. And they will just say like, oh, that was just the time. That was just how it went at the time. Um, but there's a way in which we we do this collective processing um, when somebody's pregnant and we all get together to talk about our births, which sometimes is really lovely and sometimes I think is really scary. Exactly. Well, thanks. That's a great answer to that. I've, I often wonder about that, how things land so differently with different people sometimes. Yeah. So do you have more to say on that particular topic? You were defining some key terms and phrases. Do you have, do you have more to tell us right there? Yeah. And please interrupt me if I use sort of like therapy industry speak and you're like, oh no, define that for Often I'll just throw words like PTSD. Um, the other one sometimes I'll throw around is I'll say our system, our system, referring to our nervous system. And by that, I just mean our nervous system responses of trying to like fight for our, defend ourselves, trying to run away from scary things, but I'll usually package it under the system. Why don't you do super quick definition of PTSD just in case? I mean, the, the audience is wide. Why don't you just do it quickly in case no one, someone doesn't know what that is? Yeah, so PTSD is a clinical diagnosis of um, trauma. So when those post-traumatic stress symptoms are getting worse over time, they're not getting better after that six to eight week mark, um, that has to be diagnosed by somebody who has diagnosing in their scope of practice. Um, whereas a lot of people will will self-diagnose themselves as having PTSD, which, you know, again, I don't argue with people when they when they do that. Um, but it is a clinical diagnosis and has a bunch of markers that would be um, that people would be looking for. And I think specifically for childbirth related trauma, there's a lot of debate around did there have to be a life or death experience or close to life or death experience for that to count as PTSD? Some people would say yes. A lot of people would say no. Um, so there's some debate around that. Yeah. Thank you. That's good. So the first time we talked, um, you know, you're just blowing me away with some of your topics, but there's some terms that caught my eye and were completely new to me. One of them was theories of trauma. And the other one was you talked about the multiple sites of reproductive trauma. I'm not sure if you touched on either of those in your mind so far, but if you haven't, tell us about theories of trauma and the multiple sites of reproductive trauma. Yeah. And what I'll say is, is there's a lot of different ways to think about or orient around trauma. The ones that I'm going to talk about today are largely from like Western orientations and philosophies, but in terms of wellness in the body, that could look really different when we start to look cross-culturally or globally. Um, but we first started thinking about trauma here in Canada and the States largely after World War One, when we started to see these symptoms of post-traumatic stress showing up in some pretty intense emotional dysregulation and behaviors with soldiers who were returning from World War One, And at the time, we started calling it shell shock because we thought, oh, this is just about war. Um, and people started to get really curious, like, what is happening over there at war um, that can cause such profound life change, personality change in people when they come back? Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later that we started to sort of think about and see like, oh, actually, it's not just war that can cause this. There are a lot of different things that people can experience, mostly related to threats on life, violence, abuse. Originally then that we started to 
change the language from shell shock to thinking about, um, I'm going to nerd out here as I go into the history, um, as we started thinking about PTSD. And then we really saw that after uh, World War II as well. And so it's really focused on treatments, like how do we support people with this? And then I don't think birth trauma came onto the scene until the 90s, because some of the definitions we were using then said that your experience to have PTSD needed to be so far outside the norm of what we would expect to happen like throughout the human life course, that that is what was um, messing with us, that like this was such an unusual or frightening experience. And so birth trauma didn't make the mark because they're like birth is really normal. So it can't be, it can't be traumatic then. And then in the 90s, they changed that definition to have it be um, something that we were really struggling to process or integrate. So birth trauma sort of like made it into the, the trauma scene then. But a lot of this comes from some work when we started to explore neuroscience around the idea that we have this what's called triune brain, meaning that our brain is very complicated, but sort of had these evolutionary patterns to it. We had our reptile brain, which is our... Um, primitive brain connected to the brainstem. Um, this is was developed first historically, and this is largely responsible for survival functions like breathing, our heart rate, making sure that we have hunger cues that we are fulfilling. And then next we had what's called our like mammalian brain, which was developed in mammals. And so this gave us the ability to create memories and associate those memories with things that are good and we want to seek those out or things that are bad and we don't want to seek those out. Um, and that's where we started to see the development of parts of that brain, sometimes called, it's part of the limbic system, um, the amygdala, which is a part of our brain that is our internal watchdog. And so it is always on the lookout for threats and it learns through association. And so if it has had an experience where something was a threat or has heard a lot of stories that something was a threat, it will go off and start barking at us, sometimes in ways that are helpful and sometimes with PTSD in ways that aren't necessarily helpful. Um, we have the hippocampus, which is responsible for helping us collect and store our memories. And then our thalamus, which helps us translate things like sight and sound into um, things that we can recognize. And all of this matters for a reason, which I'll get to in a second. Um, and then we have the top of our, our brain, which is our cerebral cortex, our neural cortex. That was the last part to develop. And this is where our language, our critical thinking, our strategy, our rationality sort of all happen at the top of of our brain there. And again, there's lots of debate uh, in terms of how people think about trauma in a triune brain, which I will explain in a moment. But for a really long time, this is how we oriented to thinking about trauma. Because ideally, the way that we would keep ourselves safe and like process the experience throughout the day is that um, we would be in what's called a parasympathetic state. So a state where we are not scared, we're feeling fairly rested. In our parasympathetic state, we are able to digest nutrients from our food, we're able to connect with others, we're able to get a good night's sleep. It's really important for us to um, to be here as much as we can, not always, like it's okay to not be, but we want to live here as much as we can. And then if a threat were to come in, then we would then move into our sympathetic state. So you may have heard language like our fight, flight, or our freeze response. That's that's moving into like, oh, oh, something's wrong. I need to do something now. And then we would ideally respond to that threat. And then once that threat was gone, assuming that we survived it, we would then be able to go back into that parasympathetic 
parasympathetic state. And then when we went to sleep that night, we would rest our bodies and then our hippocampus and all the parts of that limbic system would help us file away the events of the day into our long-term memory bank. And that would mean when we woke up the next day, we would know that's over, that's done, that's not happening now, which is where the adage, get a good night's sleep, you'll feel better in the morning. It's true. We do a ton of processing overnight, a ton of processing um, during REM sleep, which is another reason specifically to birth trauma. If you're looking after babies that interrupt your sleep all the time, it can be um, more difficult to fully integrate the full experience. But when we've had a traumatic experience, that system doesn't do what we want it to do. So it can flood, um, meaning like the circuitry just gets a bit overwhelmed. There's too much to process from too short amount of time. And so instead, what happens is that instead of all the sort of memories of like that's over and done now being filed away in our long-term memory bank, things start to fracture, fragment. And so part of our nervous system is on high alert all the time when we have PTSD and it is very easily triggered and very easily activated. And so when we think about soldiers again and them returning home after war with PTSD, this is where you'll have a soldier hear a firework go off um, at an event. And suddenly they're having images of being in battle. They, their bodies fully responding, like I need to run away right now, um, having flashbacks. And what's happening is we're not remembering in those moments what happened. We're actually reliving it. We are re-experiencing it. So our body is fully in that stress response. I need to fight. I need to run. I need to freeze. I need to do something here because um, I'm not going to survive this. It's happening again. And what's so hard with PTSD um, in terms of the flashbacks is you know, every traumatic event has a beginning, middle, and an end to it. Even when we're in a prolonged trauma, uh, ideally, eventually it would it would end. Um, whereas with uh, PTSD, there is no end. We're sort of like living in that state all of the time, which is um, really hard for a lot of people. Yeah, very hard. So, so is that what you like? Would you call that the theories of trauma? So that's going back to how we've believed and learned and thought and about it in the past and how we think about it now. I'm interested in your World War One story because um, I have a daughter who's married to someone whose grandma is 106 years old, and she is probably one of the the remaining uh, wives of World War One, uh, someone in World War One. And it's funny when you talk about how little we knew and how it was treated and how it was even dealt with. Her story is just, he went to war and he came back and he was never right, period. And then he drank himself to death and he died at a young age. But there was never any consideration. She just, she never talks about how the war maybe affected him or what kind of help he had. She just said he was never right. And then he drank too much and he died early. And that's the story. Yeah, rather than filtering that through, like, PTSD story and like what he missed out on in terms of the supports um, for that. And what about the multiple sites of reproductive trauma? What are you referring to when you talk about that? So again, often when we are thinking about birth trauma, we're thinking about things going wrong medically at the birth. So um, sometimes there is the bucket of, of physical trauma, meaning that there was a near-death experience from the birther, from the baby or the babies who are involved. Um, there's some sort of medical abnormality. I would even say that um, 
unmanaged pain during birth would go into that bucket. So stories of people who my epidural didn't work um, or I was rushed into a C-section and I wasn't fully numb. And so people can really often wrap their heads around, oh yes, that would be traumatic. Like that was really scary. And then what gets missed are some of the other buckets related to this. And so when there is a loss, there's a bit of a blurriness there around um, what is the grief work that we're doing, but there's this concept called traumatic grief, which is another site. So there has been a loss, but it was traumatic in nature. This was not like a normative, um, you know, my 106 year old grandma is now dying of old age and we all knew that that was going to be happening soon. And so there can be a lot of the PTS um, symptoms, the post-traumatic, uh, the PTSD symptoms with that. Then there is what happens with people who have um, a history of sexual trauma. They are at risk for re-experiencing that. There's a lot about birth that is not that normative. So in, in terms of what we're asking people to do with their bodies. So we don't ask a lot of people to like be exposed naked in their body in front of people who might be complete strangers. Um, there's a lot of internal checking that happens in the birthing process that can be very triggering for people. Even at a surgical birth where there's a numbing and the screen that comes up during a C-section, like that disconnection from like, I can feel things happening to my body. I can't witness it. Um, I feel really frozen. There's a lot that can happen there in terms of people um, re-experiencing that. And then also there's a lot of consent stuff that can come up around um, people not wanting things to happen to their body, people, and then it happening anyways. And so often you'll hear stories of people who said, you know, they gave me an episiotomy and um, nobody asked, or they like asked as they were doing it. Um, or you'll hear stories of people who uh, somebody comes in to help them with nursing if that's something they're doing. And again, there's no asking. There's just like touching like people's like breasts and chests, um, which can again be incredibly triggering for some people. Then there's the bucket of relational trauma. So either mistreatment, abuse by healthcare providers. Um, sometimes, uh, people can have really poor relationships with their healthcare providers, even if it doesn't meet the criteria for abuse, but they can feel very disrespected. Um, they can feel as though their care was incredibly undignified. And so that can bring up a lot for people. And sometimes they have a history of relational trauma, but not always for that to be happening. Um, and then I also have this bucket that I call structural trauma, which is the stuff that's happening at that really high level, um, policy place. So people who experience medical racism would uh, might experience structural trauma. Um, in Canada, we have something here called the evacuation policy, which is where we have not created enough medical supports for people, people to give birth in our northern regions. And so we evacuate them to give birth totally alone. Like sometimes their partners can come, but they might leave at 36 weeks and they have other children at home and their partners are there. Um, it is disproportionately uh, impacting uh, Indigenous communities. Um, and so there's a lot that happens there that like we just didn't invest. And so now you have to give birth with strangers and like be on your own for maybe four to six weeks. Um, so people might experience trauma from that as well. That is so fascinating because I'm just thinking back to my own um, career. I worked in the Yukon for four years and certainly that evacuation birthing was, was strong. And a lot of women 
you know, they were supposed to come to the capital city Whitehorse and check into a hotel at 37 to 38 weeks. But a lot of them just didn't or wouldn't or couldn't leave their families for one reason or another. So I got the bulk of my medevac experience flying to small little outpost communities, picking up women or delivering babies in spots because they were like not going to leave their families and go live in a hotel room for two months while they waited for their baby to come. Um, and that, that was kind of like, I was like, well, just come. It's a hotel. You don't stay a couple of weeks. But I mean, you're just making me understand it on a whole new level. And, you know, when you're talking about the sexual trauma, I have said this to all my friends and all my family that as a labor and delivery nurse, I've always been in awe of the fact that I could walk into a room and introduce myself and be performing a vaginal exam on someone within sometimes three to five minutes. I mean, I, we had just met and I, I'm so humbled by the trust that people put in me and I never... I never broke that trust. I never did anything that I would make anyone think, oh, I should not let I shouldn't have let that person in the room. But every once in a while you'd find someone, a woman, often, you know, you didn't always know the story. They were sometimes a different culture. They sometimes <clears throat> didn't have the language, the English language. And you try to do a vaginal exam and it was just a horrendous scene. And I I I, I still have some of those in my own mind. Like you don't know what happened and you don't even have a way to find out what happened, but you know something happened, something terrible has happened to them. Yeah. So, <clears throat> see, I tell you, I'm learning. You're making me so much smarter today, Olivia. So another phrase that we talked about <clears throat> or that you mentioned the first time we talked was the window of toleration. And I would like you to explain, you're talking, you're talking about self-regulation. Can you talk about self-regulation, define that, and then talk about the window of toleration? Yes. And so when I talk about self-regulation versus co-regulation, self-regulation is the ability for us to witness our own emotional experience, noticing that we're feeling a bit um, elevated, grumpy, anxious, and then have ways that we soothe ourselves um, to feel better. And that's usually stuff that we're doing on our own. But what's equally as important is the ability to co-regulate with somebody else. And that's when, if we are struggling with self-regulation, or it's just nicer sometimes to uh, regulate with somebody else, we may go to a loved one, um, a friend, even a community member, um, and they can sort of help us regulate if we're feeling a bit distressed. And one thing often that comes up in therapy and trauma therapy is this like hyper-focus on we need to self-regulate, we need to self-regulate. And so co-regulation doesn't get enough attention in terms of how important it is for us um, to be able to feel safe going to others and how there's a real ebb and flow of how we we look to each other to help us feel safe, particularly if we are under threat. And often when I'm teaching, I'll give this story of a time that I was on a, a bus and in Toronto, we have, where I'm from, we have these really long mega buses that have this hoarding in the, in the middle. They're very, very long. And there was um, a fire. I was at the back of the bus and the external part of the bus caught fire. And how my first response was not, um, as we talk about the window of tolerance in a second, was not to run, like run, there's a fire. It was to look to others around me, sort of big eyes looking like, does anybody else smell this? Am I alone in this? And then as soon as I caught the eye of somebody else and, to, and he also had big eyes and, and that moment 
clicked like oh no no we are in danger here and so that's when we started to be like help help there's a fire please stop us and afterwards we all just co-regulated each other a little bit that was really scary do you remember when this happened um and it wasn't just about me feeling shaky alone um sort of escaping this fire that we all were sort of in that together which is also a big part with with birth trauma is like we want to process that with the people who were who were there that's a great example of that. Thanks. That, that just came perfectly clear to me. And um, how exactly did the outside of the bus catch fire? No idea. We never got that. We were all evacuated. Another bus came and we all sort of <laughs> like, like anxiously caught on the next bus for some sort of malfunction. Um, uh, <laughs> but nobody was hurt. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. We all evacuated quickly. You can't even make life up, can you? Honestly. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the um, the window of toleration. I am fascinated by that. Yeah, so this comes from the work of a neuroscientist named Dan Siegel. And this goes by a few names. Sometimes people call it the window of tolerance. I've heard the window of toleration. I've also heard the window of um, regulation. But it's the idea that all of us have a certain threshold of what we can sort of emotionally tolerate in terms of our own ability to self-regulate um, before we go into a place where it is very difficult for us to self-regulate. And so an example of that might be if you were um, driving to work and you almost got into an accident, um, you would feel the pull, the stress of like, that was really scary, that just happened, but you might be able to soothe yourself. Like, I'm going to put the radio on, I'm going to take a deep breath. You might tell your coworker, like, you won't believe what just happened to me on my way to work. Somebody totally cut me off and, and, and hit me. You're not going into a panic attack. You're not going into a dissociative state. You're able to sort of ride or roll with the ups and downs. And we respond emotionally to things around us all the time. And little children are amazing beacons of what this can look like in terms of one minute they're laughing, the next minute they're angry, the next minute they're so cuddly, the next minute they're scared, that we are just going up and down throughout that window all day long. And some things can make our window really small. So if I am exhausted and overworked and overstressed, my window is real small. So I'm getting grumpy really, really fast versus if I just come back from vacation and I have a really easy day, like often my window is quite large. Um, but what happens when we sort of flip out of our window, and again, little children are a great example of watching this, is that if we go up into what's called a state of hyperarousal, that is our favorite words, our fight and our flight response, we lose the ability to regulate ourselves very effectively. And we have a very significant hormonal response because our body is primed to respond to a threat. It's getting ready to fight or run away. Our heart rate is going to increase. Our breathing is going to get really shallow. Um, often we'll have stomach issues because we, our body is going to like take all of our energy and our resources to help us move and get away or fight really quickly. We often don't feel pain in the same way. Our pain senses are really dulled. Um, our eyes can get really big or really narrow. We can get hyper-focused on looking at things around us. Um, and when we are there, if we, um, historically, what we would have done is either like fight the threat in front of us or run away. But what that looks like now is more that we might pick a fight with somebody um, or we might um, 
uh, get out of a really awkward social situation quickly. The other thing that's interesting about the flight response is that we can run away from something or we can run to something to not feel our feelings. And so we can run to things like alcohol. When I think of the husband of the grandma you were talking about, or run to alcohol because it's safer for me there and it's a way to help me regulate myself. But this is where kids are such a great example because if you've ever, I speak to my own parenting on this, like cut a child's sandwich the wrong way, oh my God. And they are out of their window so quickly. It doesn't matter if you fix a sandwich, it's too late. Like they are still like, so you're like, no, no, here, here, I fixed it. I did the triangles. Um, But they're still screaming. They're still fighting with you because they have lost access to that rational cognitive part of their brain. We have to co-regulate them to get them back into their window before they can recognize that like, actually my sandwich is safe to eat. It's the triangle. Yeah, it's a triangle. Yeah. (laughs) I sometimes, I sometimes love watching kids like, Everyone's in the grocery store and you're just whatever, tired, frustrated, hungry, cold, whatever. And you see a two-year-old on the floor just wailing away. I'm like, I wish I could do that too. I feel like doing that too right now. Yeah. You're like, same. <laughs> same. <laughs> yeah. I get you, hun. I get you. <laughs> and that's where when people have PTSD or complex PTSD, some of their behaviors can seem quite inappropriate in terms of their age because they their windows are quite small. And so they're, they're headed there and they often it feels very out of control. The other place we can go is down uh, at the bottom of the window um, to hypoarousal. And that is the um, opposite. So for going into a hyperaroused zone to try to um, fight or run away from the threat, um, this is where we would go to uh, be like, there's nothing I can do around this threat. I have to go to my last line of defense of um, hoping and waiting that help will come. And so that is our freeze response. Again, when we're frozen, often um, we can't have access to our thinking brain. Like words are really hard. It can feel um, when this happens, like you can't hear anything. I had a coworker once who was giving a public talk and uh, their, their boss's boss was there and they said something that made their boss's boss not happy. And she could see the look on this person's face. And then when it was the Q&A, all she could think about was like, I'm about to lose my job. And so people were asking her questions. She's like, couldn't hear. I couldn't speak. Like I was totally frozen in that moment. Um, uh, Or we can have what's called our feigned death response where we may actually just pass out, like pass right out. Um, And what's interesting about our window of tolerance, there was, this is awful, but I'm about to share in terms of this was an awful prank. Um, But it was a really good example of how um, we don't really get to control what happens with our um, our, our nervous system responses. There was a a video that was supposed to be a prank um, where they had a bunch of men pretending to shoot somebody behind a wall. And so it was like walkers would come up to this intersection. They would see they would hear a large bang and then see somebody stumbling back as though they had just been shot and they were focusing on the pedestrians, random people's reactions. And some people, most people ran away, like immediately gone, ran the other way. A few people just passed right out. A few people froze, unable to like know what to do next. And one person ran around the corner to like fight the, the person they thought was the, the um, armed danger. Yeah. Um, and so 
that is really interesting too, that there's a way in which some of us often have a primary go-to response um, queued up, which feels very individual, sometimes shaped by our histories. Um, but that matters quite a bit often in birth trauma with work I've done with clients around trying to understand when people are like, I, I don't know why I acted the way that I did. And there's two other things I just want to map on this, which often come up around birth trauma. When we're slipping into that place of I'm about to lose access to my like thinking logical brain into the hyper aroused place, often we will release what's called our attach cry. And the attach cry you'll see in infants, that is the cry that is not like I'm kind of whiny. It's get in here now. I'm not okay. Somebody needs to help me now, now, now. It's a very specific cry. Most parents are running to their children when they hear this cry. When it comes out in an adult, it often has a very childlike feel to it. Um, please help me. You have to help me. Get in here now. And so it can be weird to hear an adult's attached cry, but we all have one and we've all done that. The other thing that can happen is when we're heading into that hypo place, we can um, have what's called a fawning response. And this is probably what I do the most processing with clients about if it's shown up during a really scary birth. And a fawning response is when we are going to make ourselves so likable, so agreeable, so easy to get along with that we, it's a way to protect ourselves. Be like, if you like me, you're not going to mistreat me. And so then people can find themselves agreeing to things rapidly that they know doesn't feel okay for them. Or they can be really upset with their doctor. And then when their doctor comes in, they'll find themselves like being really generous and like complimenting them. Like, Why am I doing that? I'm so upset with this person right now. And that's a way for us to try and create safety as well by being as agreeable, um, agreeable as possible. And one example that was used in terms of this fawning hyper co-regulating response is that um, if somebody was kidnapped, for example, if this response turned on, they would make themselves so likable to the person kidnapping them that they would convince them like we're in this together like this makes sense what you're doing as a way to stay safe to buy time um which is a good example of like how that can show up for people but it happens frequently in birthing situations where there is mistreatment by a provider and then people are angry or confused with themselves like why did i do that hmm. i'm just having <clears throat> so many major insights here because I could I could just picture women that I've seen in labor and difficult situations, you know, everything from sitting in absolute silence with tears streaming down their face, which always broke my heart and got through labor without even making a sound. And other ones who just went like hog wild screaming, yelling, swearing. And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, that's this, this hurts. And just about, I've probably, I've been there for 10,000 births in my career. And so I've seen the top and the bottom and the in and the out, sideways, everything. And this is all making so much sense to me now. And I never, you know, I looked at it as courage or cultural differences or just personality. I never once thought about how the events before that day would have shaped how they, they behaved in the birth and how I could maybe respond to that. So I'm going to thank you a thousand times today, Olivia, because I'm, I'm learning so much. I was going to say, oh, and birth is stressful. So like our stress responses are going to show up <laughs> because even in this scenario, it's, uh, uh, yeah, I remember anyway, in my own birth with my second, I, um, I had an unmedicated birth. Um, by the time I got to the hospital, I remember begging my midwife to be like, 
you just have to kill me. She's like, I'm going to kill you. And I, she was like, please stop saying that. Please stop saying that. I can't kill you. It's not ethical to kill you. <laughs> you know, my own grandma was from Kentucky and she was not educated past grade two. And um, she was, you know, she was brilliant in her own way and a great cook and a great person and a great storyteller and a joker. But she was also a great, like, um, I don't know if this was an actual regulation or her response to stress, but if you did something or said something she didn't like, she would clutch her breast and fall backwards on the couch. And you, you just think, she's, I just killed her. I, I was just such a bad girl. I just killed my grandma. And um, I've often thought, like, I wish I had that trick up my sleeve and I kind of pull it on my own grandkids sometimes now like don't even mess with me because I could die you know I could <laughs> terrible but true okay well let's move a little bit forward because um I would have put this in the realm I mean thank you so much for what you just taught us that was brilliant and I feel so much understanding already although you know 100 miles behind where you are but I, I really love that your background offers such a unique perspective of of supporting both the patient and the healthcare provider when they're overcoming traumatic experiences. I'd like to hear your knowledge about the similarities and differences between how the patient and the provider experience trauma. And I would also love to hear you talk about the vicarious trauma that healthcare providers experience, the healthcare family members, doctors, and then eventually lawyers who deal with people who've been through traumatic experiences. Um, because, you know, I've, ta I've taught at a lot of conferences and talked to a lot of nurses and there has never been one that some, a nurse hasn't come up to me at the end of the day. And it's all about legal issues in nursing. We talk a lot about case studies and outcomes and errors. There's never been once that someone, and often, you know, a nurse who's at the very end of her career, she's got something to tell me that happened 25 or 35 years ago. And it's still so fresh and there are so many tears and she's saying, please help me. And I don't know how always to help, but so, you know, the trauma is great all the way around and long lasting. And that's exactly it with the re-experiencing when people it happened 20 years ago and it's still fresh and like, oh, it's because it's still alive somewhere in your body, in your system. Um, and it can be so confusing for people. Like I thought time would make this better, but trauma memories don't process like that. And I, I would say that there's a lot of similarity in terms of the, um, the post-traumatic stress symptoms that would show up in terms of the re-traumatization, the flashbacks, the, the, the triggering. And then there's a split, I would say, between clients and providers. So provide when it comes to clients, the way that they can see their provider is often um, in, in one of two ways. The first is that they can be the hero of the story. And so often if there has been a medical event or something really scary happened that felt life or death related, then the, the healthcare provider is the hero. They saved me. They saved us. There's a lot of accolade, a lot of um, appreciation for the role that they played. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, if it, it, if it feels like the provider was responsible for the medical event through malpractice or through um, um, some sort of relational violation, relational trauma, then they they play the role of, of the villain. Um, there are some pretty clear, long-lasting, um, I mean, short and long-lasting impacts for the birther or for the family 
usually there's PTSD symptoms. Um, often there is delayed infant bonding or connection, not always, but it can feel like really hard to connect to the baby. Sometimes the baby or the babies also become the, the reason for the trauma. And so there's a complicated relationship that can show up there in both providers and birthers. Often there's a lot of mood concerns or personality changes. Again, in both, you'll see a lot of negative impacts on relationships uh, romantic relationships, co-working relationships. Um, for birthers specifically, often there is a fear. I can't do this again. Or um, the idea that I need to limit family size. Like it's not safe for me to do this again, even though I wanted to have more children. Similarly, for providers, they may often they'll take a break from work and say, I can't be working right now. Um, or they'll leave their job completely. I've seen people who just have to um, retrain which is really hard when they put a lot, invested a lot in terms of um, their lives. It's not that easy to find a different role. Like they're, they're trained in midwifery um, versus like nurses might try to specialize in something else, move into a different type of nursing. Um, sometimes there is physical impacts on birthers uh, in terms of pain. Um, that can be long-term or short-term afterwards. Sometimes it can impact um, uh, their sex life as well. It can be really hard to be intimate afterwards. Um, and then there's some interesting research around the impact that it can have on uh, nursing if people are wanting to feed their baby that way. For some people, it is a deterrent that they're like, I don't want to nurse for a variety of reasons. And then for others, it becomes, nursing becomes really healing. So if the story was like, my body failed me, but my body's not failing me now in terms of how I'm feeding my baby. For some people, um, nursing feels like a re-traumatization of the body um, to say, like, I just, I need to have my body back. I can't actually share it with anybody else. And then when it comes to the providers, again, it can depend. So often there's a lot of relational confusion if somebody's really upset with them or has lodged a complaint that is more relational in nature that can be a lot of like, I don't understand. I thought we had a good working relationship. Um, uh, and that can, one of the things that's interesting about that, that if somebody has this really intense fond response, a client, it is really confusing for the provider. Like they showered me with praise. I don't understand where this is all coming from now um, because they weren't able to see that through the fond response. They just were like, great, this person's really happy. Um, but when there's been a negative outcome or a near negative outcome, most providers struggle with a lot of guilt. So there is particularly if there's uh, a negative outcome, there is this rush to blame and this rush to understand that happens on all sides. What happened? Whose fault is this? It's actually often feels better or safer for people to have somebody to blame or something to blame. Um, the idea of like, we'll never know what happened here is very intolerable on both sides. And so providers can feel quite traumatized by the investigation process. This assumption, like you've done something wrong and I'm here to find it, um, which is not really what the investigation is supposed to do. The investigation is like what happened here. And so that can be really limiting in terms of going back to work if they felt really mistreated by their coworkers. Um, often providers will blame themselves even if there is no finding that they did anything wrong, even if the client doesn't hold them 
as doing something wrong. They will still be on this internal journey to be like, I must have missed something. I must have missed something. And um, we run into this really challenging place of like guilt without blame. And when there is no, when there's guilt without blame, it's really hard to know what to do with that. Cause there's a sense of, I must be responsible for something without being able to anchor into what that is. In some ways it can be easier for providers if there is a finding because they're like, okay, great. Then there's a discipline process, there's a remediation process. And they're like, that would feel better for me to like get in trouble or to have to get re- like do some retraining because it would feel like I've like paid some sort of dues or paid some sort of penance versus we'll never know. And it wasn't your fault is um, a harder place in some ways to work from. Um, and some people do, uh, it does change them in terms of um, their risk tolerance can go way down, which is a challenge because then that later sets them up for um, uh, in some ways more relational complaints. If they have a very, very low risk tolerance um, than, than they used to, it can make it really hard to like work with clients who don't want that. And there's a, a scale that sometimes I'll use when um, talking with anybody who's involved in this work, therapists, lawyers, um, healthcare providers, around this idea of vicarious trauma. Um, and, and it starts with the level of compassion fatigue. And so comp- compassion fatigue there doesn't necessarily need to be a trauma, but work's been hard. Too many difficult births, too many hard relationships, um, too many, too much taking in like other people's really hard stuff. And so people become really physically and emotionally exhausted. Thankfully, compassion fatigue is sort of the easiest on this continuum to respond to. Sometimes it means like clarifying boundaries, doing a little bit of processing around what you have experienced, taking a break from work can be really helpful in terms of vacation to help you become more refreshed. If we don't sort of take care of ourselves at the level of compassion fatigue, that's when we go into this different broader bucket that is called vicarious trauma. And that's when our worldview starts to change because of absorbing all of these other people's traumatic experiences. So as you said, a lawyer who is taking in all of these cases around birth trauma might start to see birth as inherently unsafe. Why would anybody give birth? This is so not a safe thing for anybody to do. They might start to see um, healthcare providers as like globally incompetent. How do you find a healthcare provider who's competent? And so it has all the same exhaustion pieces that come with compassion fatigue, but this really negative worldview starts to show up. Like, why do I even do this work? There's like, there's nothing good here in this anymore. And then all the way on the other end of that spectrum is you'll see burnout. And burnout is not something that can usually be addressed with like compassion fatigue, with like boundaries, setting, like taking some breaks, um, doing some processing. This is not around exhaustion. It is like complete depletion, physical depletion, spiritual depletion, um, emotional depletion. And most people have to take big, long breaks from work, or this is where you'll see them leave the profession altogether. Um, and the last piece I'll add to this, which is slightly outside of this, is called um, secondary post-traumatic stress. And that is when somebody else's trauma experience becomes absorbed into our system as our own. And so I'll often see secondary post-traumatic stress when somebody has attended a birth um, 
where there was a negative outcome. And it, it, even though they're not in trouble, um, the client isn't holding them responsible in any way, they will also be having post-traumatic stress symptoms, flashbacks, hypervigilance that shows up at, uh, at work, dissociation, depersonalizing um, their relationship with clients because they are they have been traumatized in their own way. And it used to be that we would not consider if it was someone else's trauma that like you could have a traumatic response to that. And now they're like, no, you can definitely have secondary traumatic stress. Partners can sometimes have this as well, um, which I'll see sometimes when there was a surgical component to a birth. And, um, you know, the, the birthers like, I don't really remember anything. I have trauma to process related to this, but their partner's like, I saw everything. And like, and like it is seared into my brain um, and their trauma can often get missed because they're not focusing on the person who didn't give birth. Um, but the witnessing of the event um, was particularly scary for them. You know, I did a podcast <clears throat> just last year with a lawyer, Maya Tomianovic, and it was after she'd had her second baby and it was a C-section and um, her husband has like when I saw them for the first time after the baby was born, her husband just went off and he said, it was the worst seven minutes of my life. And, you know, we're all saying, hey, you. But now I feel terrible for saying that because, I mean, he was living and reliving and telling and retelling that story. And Maya had a big laugh about it too because once it got out of the OR, he says, well, let's do that all over again. He's like, She's like, no, no, let's not. Let's never. So that's really interesting. Well, thanks. That's really helpful. And I think my experience of talking with nurses too, well, patients, and um, I mean, just because I'm a nurse, my experience is more talking to nurses than clients like you have. So I'm so grateful that you're sharing that perspective because that, in my mind, is the toughest perspective of all. But um, certainly nurses, you know, like I said, will have this story 25 or 35 years later. So um, next question, because something kind of interesting to me and very interesting to lawyers is that, you know, they'll tell you that they'll get a hundred phone calls a week and only one or two of those are anything that are even close to looking like a malpractice lawsuit. Can you talk about a little bit about the exp the experience of the and the differences and similarities of the patient's experience of trauma versus mistreatment. And the second part of that question is: Do healthcare providers view trauma and mistreatment in the same way? Yeah, and you know, as part of some research I was doing recently, I actually split in sort of like categorizing um, the research related to birth trauma, like the medical events from the relational events. So the medical events are, um, these are just circumstances that aren't necessarily traumatic, but are really highly correlated. Having a surgical birth, particularly if it wasn't expected, when there's a medical crisis, a severe injury, um, preterm birth, there's a lot of birth trauma related to preterm birth, especially when it was not expected. Um, Anytime there's a really high level of medical intervention um, or there's like NICU neonatal complications, usually healthcare providers and clients alike are like, yes, we can see this through um, a trauma lens. 
again, even if the provider is seen negatively or positively, there's a, a generalized understanding around that. Um, and those are sometimes the places where people talk about legal action ensuing. Over here on the other side, we have like negative interactions with healthcare providers. Often there is um, a very serious feeling of like loss of control that happened on the side of the birther and their families. And often births just did not meet their expectations in any way. And so I don't think that most healthcare providers see the relational transgressions through the lens of trauma. I think they see it through either, what is some of the language I've heard? We didn't have a very connected relationship. Sometimes there's even um, a way that uh, clients can feel a bit blamed, like, oh, they didn't understand what was happening. And there's sometimes truth to that as well, that they're like from what it's like for the the, the birther versus what it's like for somebody who has a lot of experience and can have a sense of where that's going. Um, but there's a way in which the responsibility shifts to like, I think there was a problem with the client where there was a problem with our connection versus that there was a problem with me. And most people um, don't want to imagine themselves as somebody who like creates trauma for other people. So that's like a hard thing for people to sit with. Um, there's also quite a bit in one of the most recent studies out of the States um, on um, provider mistreatment in the birth space also showed that there's like groups of people who are most vulnerable um, to medical um, provider mistrauma. So we know that really young birthers um, complain the most about feeling mistreated. We know that low-income birthers complain the most. Uh, we know that people who are involved with child protective services often feel um, very mistreated. There is um, a, a racialized component as well. Black and Indigenous birthers, Latina birthers often um, complain much more than white birthers. So there's a lot of other pieces going on here in terms of um, uh, the structural components, the like the structural discrimination components that show up in mistreatment. And then there's this piece around the history with um, birth two that I, I feel creates this like really difficult puzzle, which is what I see a lot of, which is that like historically before obstetrical care, birth was not considered a medical event, although it was considered a risky event because we know that birthers died, babies died at much higher rates than they do now. Um, so we had this like non-medicalized way that we viewed birth. And then we had um, obstetrical care come in and obstetrical care actually has a really intense history in terms of like how it was developed and who developed it. Um, but with the rise of obstetrical care, we saw the shift to like medicalizing birth and that came with higher levels of intervention, higher levels of, um, surveillance of like pregnant bodies. Um, and there was a way in which people felt like we went too far over here in terms of medicalization of birth. And so then there was this sense of like, what would we do now then if over here we had more negative outcomes and over here we have better outcomes, but like the rise of provider mistreatment and people not feeling good, but like, that's not the answer either. And so we sort of decided that one of the ways we would address that is through really developing, um, informed consent practices. And so by informed consent, meaning that the provider would 
layout options for um, pregnant people and, and people during delivery. Um, and then it would be up to those people to decide like what they want to do through their own values, their own personal lived um, experiences. The challenge is that it presumes that um, uh, that all we need to do is sort of present medical options to people who are like pregnant or giving birth and that they will just like make the right choice and that they will be able to hold whatever the outcome of that choice is um, completely on their own. So there's a way in which we've like sort of given that, that back to people. And the phrase that's sometimes used here is the idea of like we've created medical consumers. Um, in the the birth and pregnancy process to be like, you choose the options that are available to you. Um, and it's a challenge because we don't, we know that like when we take away choice related to birth, birth trauma goes up. Uh, we also know that um, uh, medical interventions increase positive outcomes. It becomes this really difficult puzzle for people. And so some care providers uh, do a lot more in terms of like slowing down the conversation and like trying to give as much information as possible. Others don't give a lot of information and said push for like what they want to happen. And some um, pregnant people have a really strong opinion about like what they want to happen at their birth um, and have a hard time holding all of the like medical information coming to them. Like this is why we are now recommending an induction, even though we know we don't want an induction. Um, and so it just becomes quite stressful relationally for people to navigate that together. And there was an interesting piece that came out after COVID that talked about the different responses to this because um, during the height of COVID, people were seeing their healthcare providers last. They were asked to like monitor their own pregnancy um, more on their own. And some people found that so empowering. They're like, I love this. I love not having this like medical surveillance like once a month. Other people found it so stressful. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a midwife. How would I know? What do I know what to look for? And that caused them quite a bit of um, panic and anxiety. So there's a lot that goes on there in terms of this like relational component. Um, I find healthcare providers are really afraid of like getting sued if there is a negative outcome. Um, and a lot of clients really want to have control over their own decision-making. And so it's just a, a really difficult way for people to be meeting. It is. It's a fine line to walk, I think, on both sides of it. Both of my daughters have had babies in the last 10 years, and I've been there for the whole thing. But working as a nurse for a long time, you know, you you have policies and procedures and guidelines to work from, and you're trying to be safe. I, I can remember... One of the most memorable births I ever attended was in the Yukon, a young indigenous girl. I think she was 15. She's having a baby. Um, she didn't come to Whitehorse when she was supposed to. We had to fly up and get her when she went into labor. And I put her in the bed and I told her all this stuff. Like she brought her whole family. I said, there's only one person allowed, but none of them are going to leave. And I, I thought, okay. And um, I said, listen, I don't want you to, you're, you're being quite active labor. I don't want you to eat or drink anything. And until the baby's born and she just ate like a half a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken and two liters of orange crush and pushed that baby out like nobody's business. And I was like, well, damn, I don't know anything here, you know, I, but I, I, she drove me crazy, but at the same time, I respected her so much for sticking to her guns and that birth went probably minus me in the picture, 
that birth probably went exactly like she envisioned it with all of her people around and good food and an orange pop and a really beautiful, healthy baby at the end of it. And I'm like, good for you. Don't listen to me. You shouldn't listen. Not, you know, you shouldn't listen to me, even though I was obligated in my own way, or I felt obligated to tell her the things I did. But, so I love what you just talked about there. You know, that relationship is a tightrope. And what you just said really sort of replicates um, what what we sort of know from the research, what we see that is when people opt out of uh, the advice path that was given by their provider and they have a healthy outcome, they're like, see, I told you, like, I didn't need this. And it really solidifies for them to like trust their own body, trust their own intuition. When it doesn't go that way, when they're like, no, thank you to all of those things, we have a negative outcome. Um, often people have a really hard time holding that because they weren't expecting that to happen. And so that has its own sort of like trauma and grief processing around it um, uh, for, for many people. I agree. And I've actually seen a celebration at the end of that, that same path sometimes where things went wrong and seeing someone saying, yay, you know, we didn't have a C-section. But I just thought, you know, there's there's a long road ahead of you and it's not going to be easy because we we all did what you wanted to do. But the outcome was not what you wanted it to be for any of us. So so <clears throat> I have a bunch more questions, but we've been talking almost an hour and a half already, which I'm finding hard to believe. So I'm just going to ask you two more. And one of them is kind of a three-part question. So it might take you a sec to answer. But one thing I really want to touch on with you is that, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, statistically, for the number of serious injuries that happen across the country versus the number of lawsuits that ever see the light of day. I mean, lawyers are always kind of stumped by this, and they talk to me a lot about this. You know, it's maybe only 10% of what you think might represent a legitimate lawsuit. And not that I am a litigious person, but there are some, there's sometimes need, you know, medical, physical, financial needs that could be met by going through the process of a lawsuit. Um, and I, you know, and in that regard, I'm, I'm for it. If it's, you know, if it's medical error, if it's negligence and there's need, then, you know, let's talk. But all of that aside, um, it's a big mystery to them why a lot of people don't ever seek legal counsel when there's been a, a bad or sometimes terrible outcome, including birth trauma, and there's been neurological damage to a baby. Based on your wealthy knowledge and the research, your research on top trauma, can you offer us some insight into why clients either never seek legal treatment or make one or two phone calls and then disappear? I mean, I think this would probably be something that um, would be in some ways case by case. And there's a few things that I would guess would be going on there. I think the first is how re-traumatizing most people find going through a court process uh, in terms of feeling as though they are on trial in some way, in terms of needing to relive and re-experience the trauma over and over again. Um for some people, they may still be in the trauma. So if they're now caring for a child or like um, who has like a profound injury or disability or caring for themselves because they have a profound injury or disability, they could just feel like there's no time for this right now. Like I'm just reorienting um, to life as it's going to be right now. I can't go back. I can't think about that anymore. 
Um, and usually when, uh, or they think they won't win, depending on um, uh, how strong they think their case is. Often what I'll see too is that there are some people in a person's life who are like, we're going to sue, like, let's do this. And that can be partners, that can be family members, friends who feel very strongly about the injustice um, and the individual themselves in terms of how their own post-traumatic stress symptoms are showing up, can't take it on, particularly if they're feeling dissociative, particularly if it puts them into a panic, they're, they're trying to get away from those feelings. Um, uh, and then there's also this really interesting thing that comes up in trauma therapy when there is um, legal stuff happening simultaneously, which is I have to have a conversation with people around, you know, if we do trauma processing therapy, your symptoms are going to get better, probably. If your symptoms get better, I don't know what it's going to do to your legal case. And so people have to make a choice between do I do work with the PTSD knowing that then I may not have all of the like emotional symptoms to like bring to court. Do I want to get better now? Or do I want to get better in three years when this like goes to court and I may or may not win? Um, and then there's a huge piece here, I think around, again, provider relationships, which is if somebody um, doesn't feel wronged by their provider, generally they're significantly less likely to want to sue them. And I have my own personal example of this really quickly which is I had a, um, I'm a gallbladder shaken out a couple of years ago in very dramatic circumstances. And uh, something went wrong during the surgery. They like left a stone in the bile duct. I got very, very, very sick. And when I went back to the hospital the first time, they misread the report, sent me home. And then I, I was very, very sick, critical condition. By the time I, I got back, I was in the hospital for over a week. Um, and at the time, I don't have great memories of this time, but I do remember people being like, we're going to sue, like, we're going to sue, like, this hospital. And on the third or fourth day I was there, the surgeon, I'd known that the surgery was done by um, uh, surgical students on rotation. But he came and I sat at the end of my bed and he said, this is my fault. This shouldn't have happened. They were under my watch. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I can see how awful this is. All of the like litigious parts of me faded away because it was a genuine taking of responsibility, a genuine witnessing of like the distress that it had caused me. I've never felt any need to sue from there. Now I don't have long-term impacts that requires like ongoing medical care. So that might be really different, but that is often a piece that comes up for people, which is, how does that get held by their provider when something goes wrong? And for some people, the genuine witnessing is enough for them um, uh, to feel like they don't need to move forward um, with legal action. Even though I think it's risky that that doctor was like, this is my fault. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I was just going to say, I was going to say there's a perfect example of the no-fault apology, but then I remembered what you said that he'd actually said it's my fault. But you are a perfect example of apology in healthcare and how it does sometimes, you know, take litigation off the track. Do you have any, on that same subject, do you have any advice for people, general people who might be listening in that feel like they may have uh, a lawsuit or they do have long-lasting impact by something that's happened in healthcare. How, how do you 
buck up the courage or the determination or the grit or whatever it takes to just make a phone call to a lawyer. So usually with clients, we'll weigh out options if they're considering um, legal action. And so we'll talk about like the risks and the harm if they were to call and like have a conversation around that. Uh, and, and could they handle that? And like, just to get information, um, could they handle the distress of like having to tell their story? Some people can, and some people don't feel ready for that yet. Um, if it could mean that there would be a significant financial contribution that would go towards their like medical bills, their therapy bills. Um, and for some people, they, they sort of choose around that. For other people, often if it's more relationally motivated, um, sometimes we'll talk about um, other ways if they, they don't think they really have a case or they have called the lawyer and they don't really have a case. We'll talk about are there other ways to communicate what this was like for you, knowing that you have no idea how the provider is going to hold it, but like, what would it be like to write a letter and like, let them know what this was like for you. And then um, sometimes this is where I'm like, let's look to the other people in your community to be like, you may have to be a participant if people are interested in taking legal action, but you don't necessarily need to be the driver. And so is there somebody else who can support you in that process, even though I think that's sometimes annoying for the legal team, but in terms of getting them, um, uh, into that conversation to just know like one step at a time where your options to have a conversation what are your options even though we don't know what the outcome uh, is going to be yeah that's key well thank you I think that's maybe the best advice I've ever ever heard to that question great great answer so last question that I'd like to ask everybody who takes part in the podcast is a three-part question it's the same question for three different audiences and um, because podcast listeners include healthcare providers, lawyers, and the public, please answer this question for each one of those audiences. And let's start with the public, because you were just on that topic. In your view, what is the most important thing that you would like the public to know about being traumatized in healthcare or trauma in healthcare? I think the most important thing for the public to know is that everybody has some experience of trauma. And so really for everybody, regardless of like what your role is, is to start and see people through the lens of like, oh, maybe what's happened to this person rather than like what's wrong with this person. And so shifting to that um, orientation when somebody's behavior feels weird, unusual, disproportionate to what's going on. That's good. That's really good. Always look at the past experience. Um, okay, let's answer that same question for healthcare providers. What's the most important thing you'd like healthcare providers to know about trauma in healthcare? That even though I'm an advocate for really good trauma-aware training, I think what is more important than trauma-aware training is learning how to power share and learning how to co-regulate um, with your clients, which are not skills that I think are necessarily taught in a lot of um, medical uh, medical training because there's so much focus on the body and the biology. Um, but that's different from like building rapport. It really is, um, I like to use the language of power sharing rather than informed consent to be like, how are we together going to collaborate in your healthcare? Um, how are we going to partner in your healthcare? And how do you co-regulate when your clients are distressed, um, which I think not only there's research around the better outcomes that come from that, but also um, 
uh, reduce, again, the litigiousness that happens afterwards if they felt like they've had dignified partnered care. Mm. Good one. Great answer again. And now let's talk to lawyers. What is the most important thing you would like them to know about trauma in healthcare? Just what the impact of going through the legal system can be in terms of re-traumatizing clients. Um, you want to make sure that they have the uh, internal bandwidth to go through with it, um, which doesn't mean that people can't just because it's distressing. People can do distressing things all the time. Um, but at what point does continuing along the legal process um, cause more harm than, um, than, than the outcome that you're hoping for? Good one. I'm interested too in the next podcast to talk to your sidekick, Kara, about um, you know looking at your own personal traumas and how you respond to other people's traumas in that. So that's awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say before you go? I feel like I've said so much. No, <laughs> <laughs> you said a lot, but it's all every single word has been fascinating and insightful. And I just want to say thank you so much again, Olivia, for sharing your time and your knowledge. It's been such a pleasure for me, and I've had a thousand insightful moments listening to you talk, and I want to personally thank you for that, but I'm 100% sure that the audience is going to have learned a lot from you too. So thank you very much again. You're so welcome. If you haven't listened to the other podcast by Olivia, the shorter, more personal one, we're just about to sit down and record that, so don't miss it. It's so insightful to learn about the person that she is outside of work, who she is and what she does. So have a listen and tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. And again, thanks to all of you who are listening. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please like it, subscribe it, and leave us a review. And don't forget that in many jurisdictions, doctors, nurses, and lawyers can claim continuing ed credit for listening in. The podcast is available on all the usual platforms and on the Inside Medical Malpractice YouTube channel. For nurses in the U.S., you can listen and receive credit on CE Broker. And if you're a malpractice lawyer who needs a healthcare expert of any kind, including birth trauma or any type of case, you can reach us anytime at connect at connectmlx.com. We're here to help you out. Be sure to tune in for the next three episodes as we continue learning about trauma-informed lawyering. Goodbye and take good care. Thank you.